0: Our reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it It is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel Will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. We are continuing in our uh, slow trek through the Gospel of Mark and to this story of the rich young ruler. As we follow Jesus on the way to the cross, he called all people that would like to come after him to get behind him and follow him on the way to the cross. That's his own intention and aim and uh, desire. Goal of his ministry is to go to the cross, and he's inviting us on the way. And so along the way, he's calling out things that may become obstacles uh, to this journey on the cross. And this is a story that I found this week is complex. Has a lot going on there, and, uh, and I would like to take our time with it. So we're going to do part of it this week and the rest of it after Easter. So we'll kind of split it and do Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. I didn't want to rush. And the main reason I didn't want to rush is because every time I tried to prep for this sermon, I found myself stuck on this verse and the one after it. And I always tell you all, when I read scriptures, I notice the tension. Where is there tension inside the text? And where is the tension between the text and uh, my life or or how I'm seeing the world right now? And uh, I just kept, every time I sat down to study, I could not make it past this verse. I just want to notice, how much Jesus loves this man called the rich young ruler. All the ways that Jesus is loving him here. It says that Jesus looked at him. This is the middle of the conversation. He looked at him. So his love begins by seeing. Hagar is the first one to name God in the book of Genesis, and she says, you are the God who sees me. To be seen by a person is to really be loved. To be seen by God, whew. That is where, like, the king of the universe takes his gaze and puts it directly on you. And the result of that gaze is one of love, that he had a warmth toward him, an affection toward him. He wanted what's best for him. He wanted to commit towards him. He was an advocate for this man, so he looks at him and loves him. And then when he says, one thing you lack, that demonstrates that he knows this man. Think about the people who love you best. They see you. They are for you, they're an advocate for you, and they know you. To be seen, known, and still loved is powerful. When you're loved without really being known, that's like, this feels fake. If they really knew me, would they love me? When you are fully seen and fully known, and then rejected, that is unbearable. That's like our biggest fear, for someone knows me and doesn't love me. But this man is seen, known, and loved. and that, Seeing, knowing, and loving results in a powerful affirmation and invitation. You have an opportunity, he says to this man, as a result of my loving you to have treasure in heaven. It's treasure that will never go away. It's treasure everlasting, treasure that is permanent and secure and is full and that comes with this invitation that you get to come. He sees him and knows him. And instead of seeing, knowing, rejecting, it's seeing, knowing, and inviting. You may come, be with me, come experience belonging, come have meaning and significance, come have the fullness of life, come have all your needs met. This is Jesus' love. And the result is at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad. I've had a hard time moving past these two verses. Every time I've sat down to be like, okay, I need to work out some stuff about money, a lot to say about money. I'm just stuck on these verses because it's wild to me that this can be a response to that kind of pure, overwhelming, direct love from God. But yet that seems to be the world we live in where it's very possible to taste and know and experience God's love, look his gaze directly in the eye and say, no thanks. And this is striking to me uh, for several reasons uh, in our culture. One is this man's feelings are very real. His face really did fall. He really did have grief. Feelings are real and are important to notice and pay attention to. But I think sometimes our culture imagines feelings become the engine of the car, instead of just an indication. They're the indicator lights. Feelings are real in that they should be uh, not denied and suppressed, but paid attention to. Why is it that my face has fallen? Why would I experience that love and grief? Those are indicator lights that need to be paid attention to. It's not either deny the feelings, but it's also not fully trust them either. Your feelings cannot drive the car because this man's feelings would have led him astray away from Jesus if he let them drive the car. But notice his feelings are that. His feelings are true, but not true. They're real, but they are not a reliable guide. So that's for us. There might be times when God loves us in a way that our first reaction is to grieve and feel sad. What will you do with that? You could walk away, or you can receive his invitation. I am sad, my face has fallen, but I want you anyway. Help me learn why I have these feelings. But it also means to think about how we love other people. I think sometimes uh, there's a big push. We want people to feel welcome here. I want people to feel welcome in my life. And sometimes the church does abuse a text like this to say, man, forget your feelings. We're here to bring truth. And so if it harms you, that's on you. That's a partial truth. We don't get the right to just like excuse that. But on the other hand, Jesus is the best there ever was. Like he's perfect. He loves the best. And if the result of his perfect personal love can be this, Don't be surprised ever if the result of someone encountering the love of Jesus shared by us results in that. There may be a time when we do it as well as possible, and people just don't want Jesus. And I think we need to face this sometimes. That sometimes it's not just because, for sure, people reject God sometimes because of hypocrisy in the church. the the problem of evil. They reject them because of problems in Scripture. They reject them because of issues that they have with Scripture and confusion they have. Sometimes they really do reject them because they don't want the cross. That might happen. Yes, hypocrisy. Yes, lack of integrity. All that stuff matters. And also, even if all that's accounted for, this might be the result. I've hardly moved past that this week because I'm thinking about, for my own sake and for the people we love, yeah, I'm thinking about for both of our sake, how could it be that we could experience love in this way? What does it mean for our mission and how people may encounter us? What does it mean for us if people, if, the, if God is calling us to something that makes us grieve and sad, be sad? I think we need to sit in that as a community. So the question that this tension makes me ask is what could make a person respond to Jesus' love by walking away in sadness? And I got two points, that it's not about money, and it's about money. There's lots that isn't about money that can make us walk away sad. And also money happens to be a thing that can make us walk away from Jesus sad. So we're gonna work through some of these verses now. Like I said, save some for a couple weeks. But first I wanna talk about how it's not really about the money. So let's just kind of work through this passage together. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. So far so good. Usually in the gospels when a person comes to Jesus recognizing his authority, demonstrates it with a posture of openness and dependence, that's a good indicator. Usually that is the kind of person that Jesus will respond to positively and who will receive the gospel positively. He even acknowledges him as good. He sees him as an authoritative teacher and calls him good. And he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We imagine that question to be, what must I do to be saved? How can I go to heaven when I die? That probably wouldn't, that would not have been the thrust of the question. Every Jewish person at that time was waiting for God to finally move, to conquer sin, to remove God's enemies, and to bring in and usher in a time of full restoration of God's kingdom where God would rule and what God wants to happen would happen. They all expect that to happen soon. They all expected it to be pretty immediate. And their big question was, "What? how can I be a part of that time? So yes, it would include being a part of God's everlasting heaven. And also it includes like right now, God is gonna start to rule. And how can I be a part of it when that happens? When that question was asked, oftentimes people would go, the Jewish leaders would go to something about the law. But notice the way Jesus answers the question. He first wants to start with, why does this man think he's good? And what does it actually mean to be good? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. So Jesus is almost saying, who's really good to be able to answer your question? Only God can do it. And then he goes ahead and answers the question. To say he's the one that might have the kind of good authority to even be able to answer this question. And all the times that Jewish teachers would be asked the question, how can I be a part of God's kingdom when it comes, usually the response would be some interpretation of God's law and how to respond to it. So Jesus starts to fit right in there, but he he starts with what was the most accepted of all Jews at the time, the Ten Commandments, but notice the commandments he gravitates towards versus the ones he avoids. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He basically starts with the second half of the Ten Commandments, which is all about loving the neighbor. It's about horizontal relationships, and he hits basically commandments six through nine, and then he circles back at the end about honoring the father and the mother, and also says don't lie. So notice which ones are missing the first four that have everything to do with god only god first comes first no idols don't take god's name in vain honor the sabbath all those four have to do with how one relates to god so jesus first names all the ways he's relating to the people this dude's a good honorable person and jesus starts with that and but he's trying to go towards what is really good and where do we get our true dependence from so the t- the He says, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He's like, and it's probably true. It's not about perfection. They know he's not going to be perfect. But in general, he's embraced those commandments, six through nine. But Jesus looked at him and loved him and says, one thing you lack. Because he knows what that one thing is. And the man's face fell and he went away sad because he did not want to let go of that one thing. That one thing for him is money. That one thing for more of us than we may want to admit probably includes money. But the thrust of the passage is it can be anything. Anything. If we come to Jesus, especially asking the question, how do I kind of get in with you and kind of want to keep something tucked in the back pocket, it's that that thing has to be given to him too. It doesn't mean actually that you will be, it'll be totally left, like I like that Jesus, we're going to talk about this next time, but he later on says, if you give up stuff for me, you're kind of going to get it all back in a new way. So it's not so much you give it all the way and like you for sure don't get it at all, but it's having it all on the table. So it's not just I want Jesus to fit in kind of as a piece of furniture in my life to kind of help in general round out other things that I have going well for me. It's like I'm I'm giving everything to you because you are the good teacher worthy of trusting dependence. Total surrender. Last week we talked about faith like a child being total dependence. Total hands open. Does that child then get what they need from the king of the universe? Yes, but it begins with an open-handed, total surrender. And so if there is one thing, we're not quite willing to surrender and let go and submit. It starts with the open-handedness. I will give everything, and then whatever God says goes next. This is what it means for Jesus to be the good Lord. You can't hold something back and still get the kingdom. Because remember, in the kingdom of God, Who's the king? God. So what God says has to, has, to, has to rule and has to go. And so the question about this section is when Jesus calls us to put everything on the table and hold nothing back from him, do we trust him? Do we trust that he has seen us as individuals and as humanity? That he knows us as our creator better than we know ourselves? Better, he knows what's good for us better than we do? He knows and then that he means the best when he asks us to do anything when you're taking up your cross to follow him he's saying that is the best way to be human in a broken world that god is redeeming open-handed holding nothing back do we trust him with that or do we say i agree with you here i disagree with you there i like this piece i don't like that piece i'll fit this in in my goal of generally self-exploration to enjoy life and be a good person That's not, that's, that's fine. You probably will end up being a really nice person. It's not quite Christianity, and you may miss out on what it means to experience and taste true love that is not earned or that is totally received from letting go. Will we trust him? And do we trust him enough that that would influence mission? That we're going out into the world to share a message to the world. When we're engaging in tough conversations, when we are Calling people to follow. We're saying, come with me as I lay my hands before Jesus and not going to grab on to anything. There's nothing that I'm going to sink my hands into, dig my heels in, and say, Yes, not this. Now we all have those things, right? But there's a difference, like I've said in recent weeks, between struggling but wanting to want to let go, versus knowing full well, I'm not going to let go of this. There's a difference all of us will struggle in a physical world not to grab onto something. We're looking for something that will give us some security, something that will affirm our worth, and we strive to let it go. That is that's what repentance is though. It's a true desire to want to want to let it go. I'm sure I will cling to money, I will cling to approval, I will cling to something to give me security, to fill my heart with affirmation, to experience love, to feel like my life is worth it. And God, this morning, And at night, I want to start and end the day with saying, but please let it be yours. Teach me how to let go of that thing. God, you know what it is. We've had this conversation for 18 years, and I would like to have it again. Please help me learn to let this go. And over time, he will pry it out of our hands, and we'll find out that it was a good thing all along anyway. That's different than saying, I'd blatantly disagree with you on X. I know you teach you want this, but I don't want to do that. I know you want this, and you may have it all, but I will test you to see if you really are going to want this. Will you really, God, reject me? Will you really turn me away? Surely not. You've seen the rest of it. You've seen the rest of my life. I'm trying hard. Don't take this. God sees through that. Every time in the Gospels when the people try to test Jesus, people that are great people, honorable people, good, solid people, try to test them, it does not go well. Good, honorable, faithful people, sometimes Christian or Jewish leaders, respectable, solid family people, and yet it's like, man, if you are trying to hang on to something you want but it's not Jesus, you don't get Jesus. In God's kingdom, there's one king, and it's Jesus. We come in by saying, it's all yours. That's why baptism is such a great reflection of how we start out here. Nothing doesn't go under the water. The whole thing goes under, your whole self, whole self comes back out as a sign of, My whole self is dead and gone in the water, and the new life is only Jesus's. A hand doesn't let go. My wallet doesn't stay up there. My opinions on this matter, my commitment to political leanings, other kinds of idols we grab onto, all get dumped. You come back up alive, and you're renewed, but every bit left over is now you want it to be God's. That's what Christianity is, and so that's what the cult is for this person. and yet it is about money. That's a fact, because uh, in this world that is, feels scarce, feels like we don't have enough, uh, money is a great source of security. We do need it to a degree to survive. You can't go without. My uh, kids have been regularly brainstorming at the dinner table how it'd be so great if we didn't have money, and that everyone just kind of did their jobs, but still gave us what we needed, and then everyone had what they need. And I'm like, yes, but competition and people don't want that job. What if you had this job? Would you want that job? He is motivated. And you realize how much, like, he's like, ah, oh, but I wish we could just have all the things without the money at all or the work. It's like, man, it's fantasy world. I'm teaching that favorite lesson dads love to teach. that money doesn't grow on trees, son. We got food at home. You know what I mean? That's a, the favorite slogan for dads. No, we have food at home. <laughs> we will not stop and get food out. We have food at home. They'll grow up and learn, we really do have food at home. Yeah, that's right, because they don't want to spend it either. But money is the thing we are prone to cling to as a source of security. And it's a fact, this will be really hard for us to grapple onto. Scripture is one of the few historical documents in the ancient world written by the losers. People that don't have money, people that don't have power, they don't have wealth. Usually the winners write these documents that we have in the ancient world. It's kings, it's wealthy people. Scriptures are written by the losers. By the ones who are occupied who are slaves who have nothing and so it's hard for us in the richest country that's ever been where even somewhat poor in our culture is actually pretty rich to come to grips with what's there and so i'm 18 years into studying this stuff faithfully and trying to lead people in it and i just acknowledging there's going to be some tension and we should just sit in the tension so let's kind of notice what tension comes out about money So Jesus looked at him and loved him and says, one thing you lack, and he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. So he gets to go and sell everything. So the thing he wants to cling to that give him security instead of God has to be let go. To sell everything makes him free to God. His life is no longer bound with the money. He's free to God. Then he can give it away to his neighbors that need it. So now he's free to his neighbor. This man would now be free. If he gives up everything that would get between him and God and gives it to people that would put in between him and neighbor, this man is now a free person if he does this. And those are all bound within the central command of follow me, follow Jesus. Because if he doesn't have his possessions, he doesn't have control or power of his neighbor, he's going to need something, and that something is the personal presence and love of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that will be enough. That's why it's really not about money. It's about whatever would make you not be fully dependent on the personal presence and love of Jesus which he's ultimately calling this person to. He's not calling them to like Marie Kondo, like simplicity special. It's not about being a minimalist. It's about trusting in Jesus and money gets in the way of trusting in Jesus. I'm down for the minimalism, but this is not about like a minimalistic aesthetic or like how to really have a lifelong adventure where you don't have a savings account. This is about trusting Jesus instead of something else in this world. And now I do think here's where there's some tension. There's many times Jesus encounters a person and doesn't ask them to do this. So I don't think this is the command for everyone today to sell everything you have and give to the poor. It's really about what we are attached to. American Christians love to say that so that we can then say, ooh, now then, let us possess them as if they don't possess us. Possess them as if we did not have our riches. We're just all willing and since are you willing i'm willing we're all willing to part ways with our wealth so since we're all willing to part ways with our wealth let's just hold on to our money do nothing different and go down to the restaurant to eat enough meat to feed a small hastin village after church is over since we're all willing and we kind of like oh man thank god i'm not the rich man because he didn't ask me to do that and so now i can like let it off my shoulders there's a partial truth to that and that i think he's asking this man to do what the disciples did leave everything behind, and follow him. Many people he encounters that don't do that. There are people in the book of Acts that were r- r- rich enough to have a decent-sized house that they would host a house church in. They got to keep that. So it is about letting go of where their security. For this man, it was money. And for us, money's there too. It's just that the detachment of it may not be just like this man, yet the call is the same. Don't grab hold of money instead of God to find your security in. Let's keep reading to see how much Jesus kind of throws a wrench in how we think about this usually. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Well, that's the only description we have of this dude. It's nothing to say anything about how he made his money, how he's using and stewarding and spending and saving his money. It's simply that he had the money. I wish it was about something else. I wish it would be like, well, it's because he made it poorly. He didn't have a good ratio of spending to saving. Had he saved better and been more virtuous, that would have been a better steward of what he had. But Jesus seems to say it's just the fact he had the money was an obstacle. The possession of it becomes a threat. Hang on to that. Let's see how much he says that again. Jesus looked around on his disciples. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? That's the only descriptor. You are rich which is a, a relative term compared to other humans, it's hard for that person, the possession of a lot of money, to enter into the reign of God. Why? Because if the entering into the reign of God requires faith like a child, which is dependent surrender, if I happen to have a lot of money, it makes it harder to do that. I'm just telling you what's, th- what's there. I'm, I'm confronted by this, too. <laughs> I'm telling you why I have the tension, and I'm saying, if you want to be read this, I'm not going to excuse the tension from you. You're going to carry it with me. That's all I can do for you is tell you to come carry the tension with me. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Then he says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than someone who is rich. It's just the possession of the money to enter the kingdom of God. He says it three times, uh, and then... A, there's also crafty ways to talk about verse 25 about the camel thing, like, really, it's about this gate, the eye of the needle in Jerusalem, and camels would have to bend down and finally get through there. It's not about trying to say, hey, if we really try with all our might and be slick, we can like do this hard thing and shove a camel through a small gate. They're saying, imagine the biggest animal that you know of in that world, a camel, and now imagine the smallest opening you've ever seen, a needle, and it's that hard to shove that big animal through a needle for a rich person to empty themselves of their wealth and enter the kingdom of God. That's what he's trying to emphasize. He's trying to exaggerate the threat possessing wealth is to being entered into the kingdom of God. The disciples are as flabbergasted as you are right now. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Because... We, just like them, still, even with these words, can imagine that somehow worldly financial blessing is a sign that God is on your side. If you have life going well for you, if, if things are going smoothly, if you're well-functioning in society, you have what you need, you've saved well, you've worked hard, you've done well, you've accumulated the riches, you got through your career well, those are the people that we imagine, they're more likely to grasp God. It's actually the opposite. Jesus is saying, no. So he looks at him and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up to say, we have left everything to follow you. They have done the thing that he's asking them to do. And Peter's like, hey, we should be on the good scene, which he tells them they are in a moment there. We're not going to cover those verses today. But I think even then, we look at the all things are possible with God and imagine what he's saying is, ooh, it's so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible, so therefore it's possible for me to still grab tight onto my riches and enter God's reign. I think what he's saying is, what is all things that are possible with God? It's possible that God could so look at you and see you and know you and love you and compel you that even a rich person could let go of that worldly power and trust Jesus. What is impossible with God, what is impossible normally is for human beings to let go of their money and power for anything. But what's possible with God is he can do such a work in a person's heart that even the wealthiest person we know can have a heart change to no longer be attached to their money. I think that's the thrust of it. It's just frankly very hard for us to sit in. And so here's four truths that I think, two truths and two ways to respond to this. First truth is that money is a power. It is not neutral. If he emphasizes that just having the money can be an obstacle to the kingdom, then it seems like it's not a neutral thing to be used how we want. That money is a power. Now, what I mean by that is money has its own thrust and direction. It takes you somewhere. You know, people, that when they get rich, it changes them. You've seen this? Like, oh, man, they got money and it changed them. That's because money has a power. It is a force that takes you down a certain path when you have hold of it. It tells you, it whispers, or shouts even, the lie that if you have the money, you have everything, and therefore I need nothing, and so God is no longer needed. I'm not dependent upon him. I'm not surrendered to him. We've seen this, where people that have a lot of money think it gets them power and control. How many times have churches broken and folded because it was bent towards the people with the money have all the say, right? Because you believe it tells you the lie that you don't need anybody else or God because you have everything you need in your money. It's not neutral. Jesus even personalizes money by giving it the name Mammon, a Greek god of money, to say this money has its own agenda and its own interests. It's not a neutral object. It has a direction it wants to take people, and it is away from God. We know money is a power because it enjoys a sacred space in our culture. It's not very nice if I have you at my house and I start pumping you questions about money, right? Or telling you what you should and shouldn't do with your money. That's usually seen as like, back up off my money. This is sacred space here. You can't speak on it. That is what reveals that it, has a, it, it occupies a sacred spot in our culture. It occupies a sacred spot in our culture as a, as a power because if I was to just say to you, oh, I made such and such decision because it got me more money, that would end the conversation. <laughs> well, that's that. If it got me more money, that is enough logic right there. So the New Testament shows a picture that money is a power that wants to take us somewhere. So the way to empty it of its power is to give it away. It no longer has power over me if I let go of it. If it's given away to God and to other people that need it, I I kind of de- I lose the power. I vacate it of the power it could have on me. If, it is, if having hold of it is like gas in an engine that's driving me this direction and I empty my gas tank out, it's not going to take me that direction anymore. I can't. So the way to empty money of its power is to give it away, which is that's what he's asking this man to do. For this man, money has a lot of power for him. He should give it all away. And so what do we do with that in our country? We must sit before God in the unavoidable tension that those truths put us in. That's the ultimate call because one of the biggest temptations for the rich person is to want to have no problems that weigh on you forever. It's like, oh man, if I'm used to having money, when I experience a problem, I have a, I have a cure for that. I'm gonna order something on Amazon and the problem will be solved when it gets to my door in 12 hours. Somehow overnight, the, the Amazon fairy came and voila, that problem we had about a lack of something in our house has been cured by me clicking a button and getting it with money. So one of the threats that money has for us is to not be able to sit in uh, unfixable problems. One of those unfixable problems is that we live in a culture that is pretty bound up in money, and so autonomous and individualistic that it becomes really hard to grasp how to deal with this. I do think in Jesus' collectivist culture, when you're bound to your local community, When you can give everything away you take care of each other in the moment and you trust that community is so bound tightly they will take care of you down the road too man our culture just does not have those bonds if i give up everything right now i can help a lot of people and i don't really have a trust that i have relational bonds strong enough that in 60 years those people will take care of me too and so we're like oh i gotta save them but then we are kind of going against what god's wanting us to do here that's the tension what can i do in a culture that has such Weird complexity about money to respond to this. I can either just say, forget it, or I can try to like do something crazy, like give all the money away, and then immediately I'm dependent on you, and you're like, man, you shouldn't have given your money away because now you're putting me in a bind. And so, what do we do with this? And I, what I'm asking you to do is you sit in that tension. Don't let, don't try to resolve it. Don't try to run from it. The call is to hold that intention. Like, God, I know this is a challenge, I don't know what to do about it. I'm tempted to want to resolve it fast. I'm tempted to want to like put a spreadsheet together, form a budget, and never have to think about it again. Automatic withdrawal for my giving, automatic saving, and don't think about it anymore. I think the call is to just think about it. In the presence of God, with each other, God help us to be not bound by our money. May you cut through the threats of deception that money has on us And the result of that tension over time is that the spirit who does the heavy lifting, I want to say it every week, works in that tension to drive us to become ever increasingly generous and open-handed with our money. The long-term result of regularly holding the money before God in prayer is he will form us to be more generous. So, that whole like, we give the money away, give the power by emptying it, by giving, we empty the power of money by giving it away, that starts to happen when we sit before the Spirit with open hands and let Him work on it. Don't resolve it fast. Don't quit thinking about it. Never stop acknowledging that we live in the richest country that has ever existed, and that is going to put us in tension to not trust Jesus with our money. And I would say that might be the call with that first point about it's not about the money. All the things, you sit in the tension of, God, I don't want to let go of this, but I know you want me to. It is yours. And then the Spirit will do the heavy lifting. You are not forgiven. This man was not forgiven by whether or not he did that. The invitation was there. But he has to show an openness today of I want you to have it. That is the call. The blood covers us from there, and then the Spirit will do the heavy lifting to actually form us to be generous, sacrificial, loving people. And with God, all things, even that is possible. Let's pray.